In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Today, January 18th, is the beginning of the octave of prayer for the unity of Christians. It finishes on January 25th, on the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul. The Feast of the Conversion serves as a poignant and appropriate ending to a whole week when we pray for all those who are separated in some way from the Ark of Salvation. Now, sadly, this, this octave has kind of been forgotten. So we should really pray for the fruits of this octave, this time of prayer, so that more and more Catholics, and indeed more and more Christians in general, take it seriously and actually pray for the unity of all Christians, for the ecumenical movement. Now, when was this started, this octave? Well, this octave was actually first conceived by an Anglican priest. His name was Father Paul Watson, uh, became a Franciscan friar, Franciscan friar of the Atonement in uh, Graymore Abbey on the Hudson River in Putnam County, just uh, near New York. And he conceived of the idea in 1907. And that was before he converted from Anglicanism to become a Catholic. And, uh, well, it turned out quite well. A lot of people prayed. And so much so that he himself converted. <laughs> so what he started led to his own conversion. He eventually got the blessing of Pope Pius X. Then later on, other popes did the same thing. Indeed, uh, Pope John XXIII promoted it worldwide. And uh, Father Paul Watson, well, he really considered this his life's work. And how he rejoiced at the fact that non-Catholics and Catholics together were joining together in prayer. It was as though like, the weight of centuries of pain and resentment were now beginning to lift as they could, they could actually pray together as brothers. It's as though there was like hope in the air. And he really, he really believed that there could be no real unity in the church apart from union with that rock that was established by Christ himself, which is the rock of Peter and his successors. So he, like, he really believed you could have no real unity in the church without unity with the Holy Father. So he developed this idea of the octave, and so each day of the octave has like a special focus. Like today, January 18th, the focus is the union of all Christians in the one true faith and in the church. So like, like this is like all-encompassing, all Christians. Like then 
every day has a different like focus. Like the 19th is the return of the separated Eastern Christians, basically the Orthodox, so they come back to the Holy See. Then there's January 20th, the reconciliation of all Anglicans with the Holy See. Well, that's that's already starting to happen with the the Ordinariate. I mean, that was Pope. Uh, Benedict is one of his great legacies eh, that, that many Anglicans are starting to come and join the, the Catholic Church through this ordinariate. January 21st will be the reconciliation of European Protestants to the Holy See. Then the American Christians, eh, that they become more in union with the Chair of Peter. Then the restoration of all lapsed Catholics eh, so that they come back to the sacramental life. So the, there are many Catholics out there, but but quite a few are just lapsed. They don't practice. So that's part of what the octave is about. Then there's the prayer for the Jewish people, the people of Israel, so that they come to discover the inheritance of Jesus Christ, and that he is the Messiah, and the fullness of the Messianic promises. And then there's the, the last day, is the, the missionary extension of Christ's kingdom throughout the whole world. Like, like that the church really spread, that it grow. That's really the dream of evangelization. And that, those are some of the things we can focus on during these next eight days. It's really like, it's like a way of focusing more on apostolate so that everybody really be united in that one church. And inevitably it also means that, that we have to pray more about the essence of what the church really is. And really, of course, we can go to the Catechism of the Catholic Church that has a, a fascinating description or definition about what the Church is. And it says that, that why God actually created the world. You know, the world, the universe, the planets, uh, the vast array of creation. You know. He said, the, the, Catholic, the, the Catechism says, it's just all that. Just has one basic purpose to have a place of communion, and that communion is brought about by the convocation. That's why the word ecclesia, it's a Greek word which means a call to convocation, like a call to a vocation to convoke, to bring together ecclesia and. Uh, and that, that means that the, the world itself was created for the church, for this assembly of souls, even for, for the mystical body of Christ. Because, of course, uh, if there had been no world, no, no universe as such, well, then there couldn't be a, an incarnation. You know, Jesus wouldn't be able to just incarnate himself and then like, float around in space. He had to, he had to be somewhere. And that incarnation could only have been continued with his mystical presence, which is the church, the mystical body of Christ. Now we saw yesterday during the breviary, it was the feast of uh, St. Anthony, this, this hermit from whatever century, the fourth century or something. And uh, there's an ancient uh, biography of St. Anthony written by one of the fathers of the church, St. Athanasius. And this became a very, very popular biography that like everybody was reading. It was like a bestseller in those days, if, if you can imagine. And it tells how his, his, when he was quite young, his parents died. And uh, 
he was left an orphan together with his sister and you know, he began to think things over after the death of his parents because he had re received a large inheritance and uh, he started to reflect on how all these saints had given themselves over to God to follow Jesus Christ and he was musing about that he read the Acts of the Apostles and he was you know struck by the fact that you know some of the first followers just left all their belongings at the feet of the Apostles to do what they would with with their well with their belongings with their you know their money and everything in their own inheritance and he was just thinking about this reflecting on it and then it tells how he walked into the local church and as he walked in he heard the gospel account of the the rich man you know when Jesus says if you want to be my disciple you must you know you know sell all you have to give it to the poor you know and come and be you know follow me come be my disciple and of course he heard this and he said well that, that, that's what I got to do I got to sell all I got I got to sell all my inheritance and give it to the poor and follow Jesus and that happened within the precincts of the church at least the church building right because the church has safeguarded the Word of God. That's where he heard the Word of God, like that. It's as though like this massive grace came upon him, and he was like zapped, and uh, he really became like, like an apostle. He, like, it's as though it's within that context of the church that he suddenly gave himself up to God. Now, okay, this is not what we're called to do. We're not called to go and give, off, give away all our inheritance suddenly and let go of everything and sell it all and go off and live in the desert, you know. I mean, if you want to do that, okay, but uh, don't think that's what you're called to do. But that's okay. But, you know, yes, we have to sanctify ourselves within the precincts of the, of the walls of the church, so to speak, like within the context of the bosom of the church, our mother. And not naturally, not just the physical building, but, but within the purview of this family, which is the church. And the work is part of that family. You know, that's why our father was so kind of like insistent on getting the work approved so that it would really be part of the structure of the church, like be part of this family. Mm -hmm. And that that way, you know, it could be nourished by the communion of saints and we would be part of this larger family, which is the church. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is what we ask for now, that that church be unified, like in the communion of saints, that there really be a unity there among all Christians. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, now is a good time during this octave to really nourish a deeper love for the church, which is the holder of this grace. Indeed, our very vocation is found within the context of the church that carries this deposit of revelation. It's like the bank where all God's love can be found, right there in that church. I mean, naturally, we're all... We're all marked by the seal of baptism, right? And that's how we enter into the church. But all of this, of course, can only be understood or grasped if we really see the church, and as a result, the work, our vocation, through a supernatural prism. We have to see the church really, in that sense, as a work of God. It's not just a human institution, right? Naturally, some people will see it like that. But for us to truly understand, we have to see it through the prism of God's love. And naturally, for us, we understand that the unity of Christians also, first and foremost, means unity among Catholics. Unity 
amongst all the different Catholics and all the different styles, whether they be religious, whether they be very, very liberal ones, conservative ones, or the trads, as we call them, you know, the, the ones that want to go back to the old master, right? And well, they're all part of the church. They're all, like, like, you know, they, we can't just, like, kick them out or something, no? And, of course, that's what this octave of unity is, by and large, about, bringing about that greater unity. And, of course, the devil is, like, way against this project. He, he doesn't want to see unity in the church. He wants to see dissension and, and breakups and, bru and, and other groups, you know? We have to take seriously that prayer that we pray in the preaches whenever we pray, ut omnes unum sint, so that all may be one. Sicutu pater me te gonte, ut sint unum sicutit nos unum sumus. And this was a prayer of our Lord himself, that all may be one, as you, Father, and I are one, that they may be one as we are one. That this is the prayer of our Lord, uh, recounted in the, in the Gospel of St. John. Right? And then he says, well, then we say in the preaches, Omne regnum divisum contra se desolabitur. It's a powerful, you know, a kingdom divided against itself will be destroyed. You know, it's a powerful way, you know, desolabitur. You know, that's what desolabitur means. It means just like, like desolate, you know, it's like destroyed. And so, in our life, we always want to be echoes of this deep desire of our Lord, this prayer of our Lord, the Word incarnate, to God the Father, this deep desire, you know, for, for this kind of unity. It's like a, it's kind of like a, this has to be like our dream, our mission to contribute to the unity of the church and the unity among Christians. The unity among the church itself, and obviously also the unity among ourselves in the work. At least we should never do anything that might render that unity with the Roman pontiff, with the Holy Father, that, that might render it in any way kind of fragile or broken down. That means we, we have to foster unity. And we're at a time today when there's lots of attacks against the Holy Father, we might see some people who are against church teaching. Okay, that, that was, there was a time for that, but you know, but there are those who just want to bring attention to the failings of the hierarchy or the sins of the members of the church, uh, and it can be a real kind of toxic mix because it seems to indicate when when you hear people speak, oh, the Pope did this, uh, this bishop did that, and da-da-da, you know, and they disagree with this, and they sort of stir up a form of dissension. It, it can be quite toxic because it can seem as though Christ's prayer seems to somehow have failed. That ut omnisum sint, that they all might be one, it's like it didn't work. It feels like it didn't work. That's why I found it was very moving. I'm sure you, you saw that when Pope Francis is motu proprio on the on our charism, you know, well titled on the protection of our charism. The motu proprio took us out of the congregation of bishops, put us in the congregation of clergy, and the father could no longer be bishop. You know, he said, like when you get public statement. I mean, I don't know exact words, but he said something like, "Well, we will be happy to obey. We want to serve the church as she." wants to be served. 
even if we maybe don't like it, or if we, even if we maybe don't like some indication. You know, and that's, it really shows his great faith, his great respect for the Holy Father. And this is not some kind of uh, strategy, you know, some backhanded strategy. It really comes or has its origin from our Father's own desire for that unity with the Sea of Peter, always. It's our path that we always be united to the Holy Father. Otherwise, it's like desolabito. You know? It's like we're destroyed. You know, some people, they really like the traditional Mass, and they don't like the f that fact that the Holy Father put out this motu proprio, and they go on and on about, you know, the motu proprio is whatever. It's, they, they can criticize it. You know? Or about other things that the Holy Father has proposed or done. And they think, well, he's, he's ambiguous and he shouldn't be, I don't know, whatever they think he might have said. And uh, sometimes these people, when they see us being obedient to the Pope, they kind of dismiss that as being sort of subservient or uh, what they call a form of uh, ultramontanism. Ultramontanism. I'm not sure how, if you pronounce it that way. It means, uh, you know, ultramontanism. I think that's how you pronounce it, ultramontanism. It, it means uh, ultramontes, that is beyond the, the mountains, specifically beyond the Alps. And uh, it's uh, to be ultramontane, it's relative to countries like north of uh, Rome, like Germany or France or even northern Italy, um, you know that that um, you know they were ultramontane in the sense that they were um, faithful to the Pope, who is beyond the mountains. Right? Some of them saw it in political terms, but I mean, strictly speaking, it I think it was meant also in uh, doctrinal terms. They were always beyond the mountains. What do you find there? Beyond the Alps? Well, you find. Obviously, Rome there, and that's what we want to be very much united to. You know, now some people see this purely in a political lens, and uh, but you know we see it in terms of uh, support of the Holy Father, support of the Magisterium, mm -hmm. and uh, okay, they want to call us ultramontists. Fine, no problem. Well, yeah, whatever. But you know, we know that no matter what happens in the Church with the Holy Father, with the Holy See with bishops, no matter what happens, we know that Christ cannot have failed. He cannot fail because his mystical body continues in the world. He continues to act in the sacraments, in the Holy Mass, in baptism. His living body continues. It's a mystical body that continues to act. It's not just the Church is not just a series of interesting ideas. It is really Him acting, particularly through the sacraments. So, you know, this, these days are really an important time to, to pray, especially for the Holy Father, to pray for unity. What can I do to contribute to that unity? Well, I think if you had asked our Father now, if you had asked Him now at this point, with all the things that are said about the Holy See and the upheavals and so forth, I mean, I think the Holy, I think our Father, Saint Josemaria, would have no doubt spoken about our personal conversion. And uh, well, I get this because I remembered this book I read 
back in 1985, a book that that kind of was made famous because it kind of introduced Cardinal Ratzinger to the world. It was a book, it was an interview with Vittorio Missori, Italian journalist, and the book was called The Ratzinger Report. You know, that was, it was a cool name, The Ratzinger Report. And uh, it had a picture of Cardinal Ratzinger, young Cardinal Ratzinger, right? And uh, with the red background and everything. And it was like a total hit. This book was uh, amazing because it was an interview where Cardinal Ratzinger responds to some of his questions, and especially about the post-conciliar period. And he says that, that in her human structures, in her human structures, the church is semper reformanda, means that it is always kind of needing to be kind of updated and reformed in that sense. He said, but, but, fidelity of the bride of Christ, which is not called into question, ever by the infidelities of her members and there are you know people who are not faithful and stuff but that can ha that can happen but the church is still always the bride of christ he says it is not the church that needs to change it is us and that's why he emphasized the need for personal conversion for us to arrive at that unity that is so essential and he pointed out back then to a prayer that is said in the Eucharistic prayer, well, in the Mass, that is a prayer that the, the priest says, uh, well, silently or, or a, a, in a low voice at a very intimate moment, and it's just after the sign of peace, just before communion. You remember, he says, Domini Jesu, nere speeches peccata mea, said, Fidem Ecclesia Tue. That is, Lord, look not upon my sins, but on the faith. Of your church it's like a, look at the faith of your church don't look at me you know because I'm I'm a sinner and this is a very intimate moment we're about to receive communion you know, we can't just gloss over it and you know I always wondered well why is it that the priest says that and the congregation does not say it right like you say the Year's day and all that but you know like why is that and um, well, he responds to that too. He said, some people trying to change the wording using, rather than saying, look not on my sins, that the priest speaking now, my sins, it should be, look not on our sins. Do not look on our So like, presumably involving everybody, you know. And uh, he didn't like that change, the, the going from the singular to the plural, to the crowd, because it gave the sense of too much anonymity, Right? the anonymity of the crowd, the, the whole system of humanity, if you like. He said, if in the end, you know, where all have sinned, in the end, nobody has really sinned. Nobody can really take responsibility, right? And we, we all dissolve, he said, into the mass of uh, humanity. And so he insisted that the, uh, on this fact that the liturgical wisdom has wanted to insert in the most solemn moment of the mass, just before communion, right, this this importance of saying, I have sinned, and I ask forgiveness. Look not on my sin, right? But on the faith of your church. You know, the, look on the faith of your church. Right? And, uh, I mean, he's writing this in 1985, or speaking, and he says, one gets the impression that some, maybe they do this unconsciously, kind of reverse that prayer. 
They reverse it. You know, they might understand it this way. Look not upon the sins of the church, but on my faith. My faith, you know. Like I'm, I'm amazing. I have this faith, you know. But don't look at all the bad church, the, the, all the, you know, all the leaders and the popes and the, you know, the Renaissance popes and I don't know what, and the, and the priests. Don't look at them. Look at me. Look at my faith. And he said, well, if this should happen, not that it happens, but if it should happen, it would be grave, he says. The faults of individuals become the faults of the church. And faith is reduced to a mere personal act, to my way of understanding and accepting God and his demands. He said, I really fear that today this is a widespread manner of feeling and thinking. It is another sign of how greatly in many places the common Catholic consciousness has distanced itself from an authentic conception of the church. He said, no, 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 we must go back to saying to the Lord, we sin, but the church that is yours and bear of faith does not sin. We sin, but not the church. Faith is the answer of the church to Christ. It is the church in measure in the measure that it is an act of faith. This faith is not an individual act, a solitary act, a response of the individual. Faith means to believe together with all the church. And it's quite beautiful the way he recounts that, that, that you know, really in the end, that the church is not ours. The liturgy is not ours. We cannot change it, you know, according to our will and our desires. And um, you know, sometimes we get into this overzealous activism. You know, we could build up sophisticated structures, all the things that we might do, and they may indeed be very interesting. But in the end, all those things that we might do, those structures, those are not the true church. And and that's why our fathers often say, you know, that beautiful prayer. You know, similar to what John the Baptist said when he looked at our Lord, that I may disappear so that only Jesus might shine. And Jesus, well, we find him in the church. So we, we ask the Lord for that faith in the church and, you know, let's do our part to pray for the unity of the church, for the unity of the lapsed Catholics, that they come back, the unity of the Protestants, the unity of the Eastern righteous, the unity of the Anglicans, you know, that, that this be something that we feel responsible for. No doubt I've, I've told you that story about this Swedish couple that had started a megachurch. Their names were Ulf Ekman and his wife Birgitta. And uh, this was like a massive movement in Uppsala there in Sweden where he became known, uh, this guy, Ulf Ekman, as the pastor of pastors. And he started like a mega church years ago. And he started the largest Bible school ever with something like a thousand church communities. And, and um, you know, it was like he was like, if you're talking about success, this guy was like totally it. But he, he started traveling, he went to the U.S., he went to the Holy Land, France and stuff. And... Uh, he announced in 2014 in front of his congregation that they were totally dumbstruck that he had decided, he and his wife had decided to, to step down and enter the Roman Catholic Church.
church. And they were all there, what? They couldn't believe it, you know. And he said he saw all these activities that he had started, Bible schools and Bible groups and, you know, all these churches. But under the surface, there was this pain that he felt, this kind of inexplicable sense that there was something wrong. And he wanted to get rid of this pain, and he would ignore it, uh, you know, and uh, he was saying, why is this causing me so much pain? Why is there this dissatisfaction about what the church really is? Hmm? He said, I couldn't get away from this question. And he understood that the, the problem was that he was somehow contributing to, he was doing good things, good structures, but he was getting away from the true church. Hmm? It's a beautiful account, right? And, and indeed, the church is a multifaceted reality and founded by Christ himself, of course, and, and we want to indeed uh, contribute to that unity. Let's try to live a good octave every day. Maybe something we could pray, that, that prayer just before communion, you know? Look not upon my sins, but the faith of your church. We can say that with greater love. Or the passages of the precious, ut omnes unum sint, apply it to the work and to the rest of the church. Let's try to really live this octave and make our contribution palpable. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations that you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.